Genesis chapter 2. This morning our text is found in verses 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Shall we pray? Father, as we begin once again in our studies in Genesis and especially as we begin a series of studies from this point on in chapter 2, we ask for the anointing and the blessing of your Holy Spirit to fill us, to fill our minds and our hearts, that we may come to a greater understanding of your word, of your purposes and of your plans, of how great, Lord God, you are in caring for every need that we have. We are thankful, Lord, for the opportunity and the privilege of being able to come to your word as freely as we have today so that we may come to a greater understanding of your presence, of your purposes, and of your plans for our future. We thank you for being with us as we go through your word today. Enlighten us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a word that is uh, nearly faded from our vocabulary in these ordinary, colorless times of ours, except maybe as a name for a honeymoon cottage or resort, and that name is Eden. Should you look up this word in Roger's International Thesaurus, you won't find it under the section dealing with historical names and places. You'll actually find it under the section dealing with imagination. The terms that you find in connection with Eden are listed as utopia, paradise, heaven, Atlantis, happy valley, fairyland, dreamland, land of promise, and kingdom come. But let me ask you this question. Is this the Christian view? Well, personally, Eden needs to be revived in our vocabulary simply because it is a proper and a constant reminder of two fundamental truths that are essential to Christianity. First of all, 
Christianity is a historical belief system. Many would say, well, that Christianity is indeed a religion. And so that's what I mean when I say that Christianity, first of all, is a historical belief system. It isn't merely a religion of metaphysical ideas or concepts as many non-Christian religions are. Because it deals with real people in real places who have experienced real acts of redemption by God in history. And then secondly, it is the story of man's fall from perfection and the succeeding redemption of countless men and women by God for their good and for the praise of His glory. You see, in answer to the question, is this the Christian view in dealing with Eden, it, is certainly, uh, it certainly would be wise for us to want it to be. Because if Eden is not real, then the fall isn't real. And we can all entertain the contented and comfortable notions of the secular humanists that say that there is nothing really wrong with the human race and whatever imperfections or flaws that exist will all inevitably be wiped out in time. Now, we've dealt with that issue of time, haven't we? With the evolutionist who says, you know, we need a lot of time. Billions of years, in fact. So that we can see everything just kind of happen by cosmic accident. To have what we have before us today. So is their same thinking when they believe that things are actually getting better and not worse. Which actually goes against the grain of the evolutionist who who has to acknowledge, as we have seen over the past few months in our study of the book of Genesis, they have to acknowledge the fact that there is a second law of thermodynamics that says that everything is actually falling apart. Entropy. And where that is happening physically, because of the fall of man, not billions of years ago, (laughs) but thousands of years ago, things are actually getting worse. And not better. But sadly for that secular humanist, the Holy Scriptures are in opposition to such hopefulness, such optimism, and instead declare that man's state apart from God is desperate and it is hopeless. Now notice that I said man's state apart from God. Because if you are in Christ today, nothing is hopeless for us. Everything is hopeful. We believe the truths of Jesus Christ. We believe that He said, I'm coming again. And I'm going to gather you unto Myself. Everything that was said of Jesus was true up to the time of Jesus and after what Jesus said uh, and, and, uh, up to the cross and then beyond the cross, everything has been true. So we can certainly believe that He says He's coming again. We can, we can count on it. We have hope. But if you're apart from God, then no matter how you think or what you think, you're desperate and you're going to be hopeless. We knew that when we did not know Jesus Christ. What a change after we came to the Lord. Solomon, in writing as the preacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 14 says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. 
And by the way, when you do a study of the book of Ecclesiastes, you realize that every time that Solomon uses the phrase under the sun, that means he's, t- he's talking about everybody who is living their lives apart from God. Life that is lived apart from God. And so he says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. All is worthless, actually, is what he's saying. Later on in the same book, in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 3, he says, This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all. Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil. I would want you to remember that phrase for later on today. He says, Yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live, and after that they go to the dead. And notice what he says about the way things are when people live in a state of being separated from God. Their hearts are full of evil. There's madness in their hearts. Does that not describe somewhat of the, of, of the world as we see it today? Of society and culture as we see it today? That there is this fullness of evil, that there is this madness that is going on in the world? Do you ever read the news? Do you see the news on, on, on TV and you, and you think, what is wrong with people? The evil that people play upon the, uh, the lives of others? The wickedness that goes on? What a difference. How can we say things are getting better? But from the very beginning of our studies in the book of Genesis, we have seen clearly and declared that the accounts before us are indeed historical. That there is no doubt for us in answering the question, is Genesis fact or fiction? Because it is undoubtedly fact based on the nature of the material itself, as well as from the attitudes and the reflections of other biblical figures toward the truths of Genesis, including that of our Lord Jesus Christ Himself who found it no problem whatsoever to quote, as a matter of fact, as he does in Matthew chapter 19, in two verses, I believe they're verses 4 and 5, from both Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. His quoting from those very works, from those very chapters, I should say, is evidence enough for us that Genesis is true, that Genesis is real, that Genesis is fact, that Genesis is reliable and historical. And so as we come to verses 8 and 9 of Genesis chapter 2, we read, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Picture the scene with me, if you will. Man had just been created, formed from the dust of the ground and in the image of God. The Lord God Himself, having breathed the very breath of God into the nostrils of man. And man stood there, and may I say to you that he stood there upright. Not like this. He stood upright upon the earth for the very first time in what we can now say is Human history. 
standing there in the midst of the lush greens and radiant reds and the oranges and yellows and blues and purples and whites and all the other colors of the flowers and the bushes displaying their innocently wild beauty. So what did God now have? What did God now have? First of all, He had the universe which He had planned and purposed, created and made. He had the man whom He had planned and purposed, created in His image and made. And He had the perfection, the perfect man and the perfect universe which God had planned and purposed. But something else was needed for man. He needed a residence. He needed a place, a home, a place to live. God knew that, of course. That's why God doesn't do things haphazardly. He doesn't do things capriciously. He does things well thought out. Before we were even born, God knew us. And when we were made, we were fearfully and wonderfully made. For God knew us before we ourselves could ever think or breathe. So we have called this place the Garden of Eden, the most beautiful and most bountiful paradise that man could ever imagine. And were we to give meaning and understanding to the word Eden, because it certainly does have meaning and understanding, then it would be called the Garden of Delights. The Garden of Delights, for that is what Eden means. The word Eden in the Hebrew means delights. Take note that God's wonderful and glorious goodness is seen in His design of the garden. The features of the garden show us clearly that the Lord God cares deeply for man. Think about how people see God today, if they see Him at all. There are those who don't believe in Him at all. There are those who would say that everything that we've been reading from Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 is all just fable, myth. And there are others who say, well, we believe that there is a God, but uh, it, it seems to us that, that God just kind of made things and created us, might, might have even used evolution to create everything over billions and millions of years or whatever, and, and somehow He just made us and then He just kind of walked away. He just kind of le- left us to ourselves, uh, as deists uh, would uh, be considered believing But that's not how we see God from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Even then, when it says in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, He created it with purpose, with reason, with meaning. 
And so as we look now more carefully and more closely, more uh, focused uh, uh, specifically on, on this man in this garden here, we have to see what God has done, how God cares deeply for this man, for his welfare, for his provision, for his security and joy, and even his happiness. There could be no more ideal place for man's residence and home than in the garden that God planted for him. But we must first of all begin with the understanding of the reality of Eden. The reality of Eden. Once again in verse 8 it says, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there He put the man whom He had formed. Now, we're all in agreement that in chapter 1 of, of Genesis that, that God made man on the sixth day of creation. So, as God now places this man in this garden, we realize that everything that had been created as far as that was in the garden was actually done on the third day. As God created that life, that uh, of vegetation and all. So while we believe that the Garden of Eden was a, a real place, one planted by God Himself, the reality of the garden has been denied by some. We call them, uh, we can call them secular humanist evolutionists or humanistic evolutionists who consider the Garden of Eden to be a fictitious story in a fictitious place, a fairy tale or a fable. The humanist says that the biblical author simply pictures man beginning his life in a perfect environment and later failing and beginning to corrupt the earth. But then there is the religious man, and as I said, there are a couple of views here. Religious man, on the other hand, often looks upon the Garden of Eden as a symbol or a type of the environment or the ideal environment or the ideal earth, as it were. He considers the garden to be as a dream. A dream of the ideal earth and the ideal environment toward which mankind should work. In other words, he's saying, well, God must have put this vision of the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2 so that we could see it and say, you know, that's what we ought to be aiming for as man and as mankind. And so the religious man, usually liberal in his theology and even his politics, will say that the task of man is to strive to make the earth the Garden of Eden. The utopian paradise for which man dreams. But take note that this passage says nothing of the sort. This passage teaches that the Garden of Eden was a real historical place created and planted by God Himself. How can we believe this confidently? Well, because of three basic facts. The first fact is this. A specific direction of the Garden is given. 
A specific direction of the garden is given. The garden was planted in the east, in the land of Eden. Now remember that when Moses wrote this, he was leading the children of Israel in the wilderness throughout the great Arabian desert. Now, after the flood, of course, and the waters receded from the flood, the continents then were formed as we know them today for the most part. Before the flood, though we don't have any assurance that the continents were formed as we see them today. Therefore, as Moses is receiving this from God to write this down as the account given unto Moses, there is that direction given. One simple word toward the east. Well, there in the Arabian desert, east of the Arabian desert, would point toward those nations of the Middle East that we know, specifically toward the great fertile plains of the Tigris and the Euphrates. The rivers that exist even today. And you know where they exist. They exist in a land that today is called Iraq. As a matter of fact, the Tigris and the Euphrates River run through the country of Iraq. So note that the direction pointed was not fictitious or pointed to was not fictitious or a, a symbolic land. There actually is a place where Tigris and the, and the Euphrates exist. We'll see that in just a moment. Secondly then, so we've gone now from that specific mention to a general location of the garden being given where real lands and rivers are mentioned. So let's look down at verse 10 of this chapter, chapter 2. And of course, we will come back to this in a little bit more detail next time. But it says that a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from thence it was parted and became into four heads. There was one river. Now, I want you to think about something. Just for a moment. Think about that garden and, and, and that place where God has placed Adam. And that God has provided so much for Adam that he's given him... Four rivers. Now I can just imagine Moses writing this down out in the Arabian desert where there is no water. Or at least there is no water as available. He's saying, boy, that Adam had everything. We don't have any water. We have to go hunt it. We have to go dig for it. You know, We have to go find a well. He had four rivers given to him. Because notice what it says. It said it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison. That is it which compasses the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Bedellium and, and onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. Now, we're not sure about these two rivers that are mentioned here, but we can be sure pretty much of the lands where they are, Havilah. And then it says the same is that of, uh, that uh, compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. That would be to the south. We know that, certainly. But then notice verse 14, and the name of the third river is Hiddekel. Now, Hiddekel is actually the Tigris River, and that is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. We know about those rivers. So this is a very general location then of the garden being given to us in this account. 
So it's real. It's historical. And then thirdly, the very context of this section of Scripture points toward the garden being then historical. What is being conferred here, what is being discussed or given or spoken of in this section of Genesis, remember is still tied into Genesis chapter 1, and that is creation. What is being conferred here in this section of Genesis is creation. The beginnings of the universe and of man upon earth. And if the earth and the universe are real and man is real, in other words, if the account of creation is accurate, then the Garden of Eden, man's paradise on earth, must be a real historical place. Or at least in that form as God made it, it was that place until after the fall of man. And of course we'll get to that between Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 6 when the flood comes. But we'll deal with that then. So why then is it important to stress that the garden was real historically? Because of... Because of it, because if it was, let me, let me put it that way, because if it was a fictitious place, then the fall of man is a fable. If Eden was a fictitious place, then the fall of man is a fable. If the garden is not real, then it means that there is no such thing as sin. And if the garden is not real, then redemption through Jesus Christ is not necessary. Once again, I point you to the heart of man from Ecclesiastes 9. The heart of man and the madness of his mind. And does that not tell us that today there is a necessity for redemption? Man is saying this. We don't need God, nor do we need Christ to save us and this world. Man does not need God nor Christ to save him in his world. All man has to do then. All man has to do is to work for the ideal earth and ideal environment. That's what we're here for. We're here to become green. Or so we're being told. Now listen, as Christians we respect the earth because we know God made it. So we're not the problem. But man obviously wants to put all the blame and all the problems on people who believe in God or people who believe in, in, in creation uh, by God. Uh, people who believe that, you know, we, 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 don't, we just want to trash this earth because we want to go to heaven. No. We respect what God created. But you see the thinking of man? We're going to clean this place up. If they have no belief that there is anything beyond this life or beyond this existence of theirs, then they're going to want to be uh, getting that ideal earth environment all by his own energy, by his own efforts, by his own works, by his own goodness. Man thinks that man is essentially good. You've all heard that, haven't you? But what does the Bible say? Well, let's look at Isaiah 43, verse 27. And we could even go further than that, be, uh, you know, uh, back uh, even to Genesis, but we'll, we'll, we'll just kind of start here. Isaiah 43, 27 says, Thy first father has sinned. Who's that? Adam. 
Thy first father has sinned, and thy teachers have transgressed against me. So even those who were supposed to be teaching the people about God and about His goodness, about His mercy, about His grace, about His power, about His compassions and all, they weren't teaching them about that. So even they who were supposed to be teaching them about God were transgressing. How many times have we seen where God has spoken to Israel and said, Why? Have you disobeyed me? Why have you rebelled against me? Why have you gone to worship other gods, other idols, or idols as, as gods? And that even the leaders of the people, all the way up to the kings, many kings of Israel. Thy first father has sinned, and thy teachers have transgressed against me. Paul in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 says, As it is written, There is none righteous. No, not one. Quoting out of the book of Proverbs. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. How clear is that description that Paul gives of fallen man? We all know Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And I want you to keep that thought in mind when we talk about Adam in just about uh, a couple of minutes here. Romans 5 verse 12, we've quoted this a few times in our past few studies. Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So there is none righteous and there is none good. But what does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9? He says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What does man want to do today? He wants to just work out of his own energies, out of his own efforts, out of his, his own perceived goodness. He doesn't want to turn to the God who has created all things and who can change the heart of man. But Paul to Titus will write in Titus chapter 3 verses 4 through 7, but after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which he, we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And please keep that thought of eternal life present in your mind for just a moment. So the Lord knew that man needed a place. The Lord knew that man needed a place, a home, a home to experience the most intimate love, caring, sharing, communication, and relationships, a place to be employed and fulfill duties and responsibilities. A place to contribute to society, a place to give birth to and to rear a family. Remember, Eve is coming along pretty soon. A place to feel settled and secure, quiet and at peace. A place to revive his strength for the next day's duties. God knew that man would need all of these things. It's interesting that the word for garden in the Hebrew means a place that is enclosed, protected, and sheltered. It even has the idea of being covered. 
of being perfectly protected. That's what a garden is. That's what this garden was for Adam. And then add to that the word Eden. A place of delight. And a place of pleasure. The Garden of Eden was different from the rest of the earth. In fact, it was different from all the rest of creation. All that God had made, as great as it was. And don't forget, of course, that his greatest creation was man. But of all the rest that was created, this garden was different. Because that place was not so much a place, but it was a person. It was God himself. Now, think about all of this for just a moment. God gave man a perfect nature and a perfect environment so that man could have an abundance of life. A life that far exceeded anything for which man could could ask. But as we shall see in the next chapter, chapter 3, what happened? Man still fell into sin. Isn't that interesting? I mean, it's not only interesting, it is amazing. It's astounding. A perfect nature. A perfect place. A perfect environment. And still, man fell. He still came short of the glory of God. He still failed. And I know what some of you men are thinking. It's because Eve hasn't come onto the scene yet. We'll talk about that next week. But don't blame Eve. Yet. (laughs) But we have to say very clearly, and this is what we have to understand about this, We have to say very clearly that man cannot use his environment as an excuse to sin or to fail or to come short. I mean, environment may have an influence upon every one of us every day, right? An environment can have an influence, but a person is still essentially responsible for his own behavior and his own actions. So man's problem is the heart. I know we're kind of moving a little forward here, but, but, you know, bear with me. Bear with me. You see, God already knew this. Think of what it says in Genesis 6 verse 5 where it says, And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart, underline heart there in your Bibles, was only evil continually. Now this is three chapters after the fall. This is how fast the progression of evil became. 
Man today seeks to achieve his utopia, his Eden, by his own power, by his own intellect, even by his own scientific prowess. But let me add to that the perverseness of man. That a lot of people today think, you know, that, that, uh, that their Eden, that their utopia is based upon what they can get from others, what they can steal from others, what they can take from others through murder and, 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 and thievery. And, and you just add all those kinds of things. And you wonder about all the people today who are, who are killing others just, uh, you know, insanely, just for their own pleasures. Think about these drug wars just a couple of miles from here, right across the border. We would say they're di- people are dying senselessly. And it's, it's encouraging other people and other gangs you know, to go in and do the same thing in their own neighborhoods. To take from others, the others that don't have very much themselves, but to take what they have for themselves. That's their creation of, of Eden in their own perverse minds. But what man needs to do today is heed the words of God. Man needs to hear what God has to say. I know what you're saying. Well, but man doesn't want to hear. Yeah, but they still need to hear it. And how will they hear it unless we're sent? Man needs to hear the words of the Scriptures. Like this verse of Scripture in Proverbs 20, verse 6. It says, most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness. But a faithful man who can find? Well, that is certainly true today, isn't it? People say, well, we're all essentially good. I really struggle when I see TV a day. And, and you, know, I, you know, with all due respect to people in the media, if you're in the media, you know, God love you. But man, I'll tell you what. There's some weirdness that goes on in the media. And I've, and I've experienced this firsthand as, as, as a chaplain in the, in, the, in the police department and sheriff's office. I, 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 you know, when, when, a, when a tragedy takes place and, you know, the media has to get in the face of people and say, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? You know, and they just get in the way a lot of times. But in one incident where there was a, a, a gruesome murder that took place a few years ago, and, then, and, and the media comes and, and, and asks neighbors, you know, well, what, what, what do you think about that, that guy, you know, that uh, you know, supposedly he's uh, accused of killing these people? Well, you know, he seems like a good man. Well, that was gruesome what the person did. Was one guy that, you know, killed somebody and then very carefully and patiently chopped them up and put them in his refrigerator. That's not good. Well, he seemed to be a good guy. He always smiles, always said hello. I wonder why he's smiling. I certainly don't want to know. But men will proclaim even his own goodness. But hey, a faithful man, who can find a faithful man? Faithful to God. Faithful to the things of God. Listen, Isaiah 64 verse 6. This is something man needs to hear. We are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Listen. 
the majority of us in this room here today know exactly what these scriptures mean. Why? Because at one time we thought ourselves to be good enough. If we're just good enough to do this and good enough to do that, we can get into heaven. But the Bible teaches us there is no good thing in us. And unless we turn to the, to the one who died on a cross and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, we will not have eternal life. We won't understand what it means to be saved from the wickedness of this earth, from the sin and the death that has happened since the fall. When we came to this understanding, what happened? Our eyes were open, our hearts were empty, and we said, Lord God, fill us with the truth of Jesus Christ. Fill us with the truth. I am a sinner. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. And I believe he shed his blood that I might be forgiven. And I believe that he rose again from the dead so that I might have the hope of eternal life. How many of you said that? Is that not the greatest miracle that's ever happened in your life? God's still working, isn't he? God is still working today. God is still saving lives. Well, folks, that's the, that's the reality of Eden. Now we need to deal with the responsibility of Eden. Let's look at verse 9. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I have to interject here and tell you, this is just kind of the introduction to this. We'll be here for a little while. Is that okay? I don't mean today, next week, next time, you know. There's a lot here to, to, there's a lot here to grow on, so uh, this is kind of just the beginning. We're going to read later in, in verse 15, and you can look at it if you want there in your Bibles. Verse 15 says uh, that the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden to dress it and to keep it. What does that imply? It implies responsibility, doesn't it? It, re- it? it implies some duty for the man in the garden that God has given him. But we would be amiss not to dig deeper into the greater responsibility given to man in the garden of God. We are told that God caused every tree Literally, all kinds of trees to grow within the garden. So that thought here is of an enormous number and all manners of trees that were pleasant to the sight and and good, good for food. I mean, the garden was furnished and supplied for Adam's need and his pleasure. And he had four rivers too. (laughs) We'll get to that one later. He had everything. But think of what the garden provided. Think about it. It provided beauty. You know, man, when, when, when he was formed by God, was formed as a man, not an embryo, not a baby, he was formed as a man. But on that first day, as he opens his eyes, what was already existing? Everything else that God had created. And when he opened his eyes, he 
saw beauty. Beauty. So, the garden provided beauty. It provided discovery. It provided encounter. As well as it provided food and shelter. To satisfy every taste and nourishment of man. But the garden also provided something else for man. God provided in that garden spiritual surroundings. Spiritual surroundings. You see, a spiritual environment was also given to man. That wasn't missing here. That wasn't lacking. The beauty and the provision of the garden was bound to give Adam a sense of awe and a sense of worship. It was all to stir praise and thanksgiving from man. Here's the great lesson of this verse. No surroundings and no environment can fully meet man's need for worship. Only God can fully meet man's spiritual need. Only God can meet man's spiritual need. And that's why I said earlier that, he, that, that Adam was given a place, but that place was not so much just a place, but it was a person. Who was there? God himself. And even more than that, think about it this way. The sad thing about today's world is that most people seek the fullness of life from three things. They seek uh, the things, uh, uh, the fullness of life from the possessions of the earth, from the pleasures of the earth, and from the power of the earth. But how spiritually short-sighted even we have become in this country of ours. That we would only seek the possessions of the earth and the pleasures of the earth and the power of the earth. We have become short-sighted in this country too. Think about if we will stifle Christian holidays and allow, as we have seen in the last week, allow judges to silence things like the National Day of Prayer. I can tell you this. There is no judge in this country who will ever keep us from praying. Especially when we have taken a day where we will all gather for this nation and pray for this country. And yet our own administration wants us to kind of be tolerant. And let's observe things like Earth Day. Let's be green. Even the American Humanist Association has, has pleaded with our president to uh, commemorate Darwin Day. So we'll consider these things. But let's not take a stand when people are trying to silence the gospel. I'll tell you this, they won't be able to do that either if we'll stand and if we'll proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how short-sighted have we become 
to be more concerned about taking the possessions and the pleasures and the power of this earth rather than to take what God has given us in a greater way through His Son, Jesus Christ. But listen, as important as the earth and the physical are, man's basic need is much deeper than what appears on the surface. Much deeper than the physical and the material. You see, we also learn something that makes us different from all the animals of this earth. Man is a, is a spirit. We've been given a spirit. This is what, this is what connects us to God. Because God is spirit. And man's basic need is spiritual. You see, this is the reason why Paul, in, in beginning his letter to the Ephesian church, writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. That's significant. Why? Because those blessings that are spiritual blessings are more important than every other blessing that we could ever have. And the Lord has made it clear that He will see to it that we have sufficient food, that we have sufficient shelter and clothing, everything that we need, but with one condition. Do you know what that condition is? Jesus speaks about it in Matthew 6.33. He says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And so because of this, God should be acknowledged and God should be praised. Even in a fallen world, we who are believers in Jesus Christ should be the first to stand up and acknowledge that God is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him and that He is the one to be praised, honored, glorified, worshipped and served. And that not just by His people, but all who have been created in His image. But, we're going to be the only ones doing it until others come to know the truth. So think about this. The garden not only met man's physical and spiritual needs, but also his eternal needs. And we look at verse 9 once again, and it says there, at the end of verse 9, it says, The tree of life also... In the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now I've got to tell you this. I'm going to have to leave you hungering for more. Because this is where we're going to pick up next time. But I just want to whet your appetite a little bit. Because of the tree of life. That is God's concern for man's eternal life. And in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, we'll close with this verse. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And we'll read a number of scriptures next time that tell us where that paradise is. Of course, it is in heaven. But the fact of the matter is, when we leave Adam here in the garden, guess what? He's been, he's been told. It's all here for you. See, we, we've got to read a few more verses before we read that God says to Adam, I, it, and he says to him, of all of these trees, you can eat.
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat. Because on the day that you eat of that tree, the fruit of that tree, you, sh- you will surely die. Now, what does that tell us about the other tree? The tree of life, which was in the garden, was there readily available. But it also tells us that Adam never got the fruit from that tree. But it was there. You see, the fruit, or the, the, the fruit of the tree of life is readily available today. You know who that is? Jesus. I keep thinking that one day when we see the tree of life, because the Scripture doesn't really tell us, but I keep thinking that one day when we look at the tree of life, it's going to look like a cross. Now that, you know, that's not Scripture. Don't quote me on that. You know, Charlie's weirdo. I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, when I, when I see that tree of life, it's going to look like the cross of Jesus. And yet the fruit of that tree gives eternal life. And if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've eaten of that tree. And the Lord says, you have eternal life. Now what does that do to you? I'll tell you what it does to me. It humbles me. Because you see, I was fallen just like you. And I realized that in my fallen state, I didn't deserve any good thing. But God, in His goodness gave us of that fruit to eat. Jesus says, come to me and you can eat of the tree of life if you take me. And so, if you come to Jesus, you come to the promise of eternal life. If you haven't done that today, or up until today, then I would encourage you that today would be a good day to say to Jesus, Lord, I want the assurance of eternal life. And I don't have that assurance right now. But I believe what your word says, that Jesus died for me, that he shed his blood for my forgiveness, and that he rose again from the dead. I confess that with my mouth and believe it in my heart. Well, the scripture says that if you do that, you will be saved. And you'll have that eternal life. I hope you desire that today more than anything else. If you don't have it right now. And then if you want before you leave, you can come. And in just a moment, we'll have some people up here in front that will pray with you. Just come up to them and tell them, I want, I want to have that assurance of eternal life right now. And they'll pray with you. God, God has already seen your heart. So that's what's important. God has seen your heart. So, let's pray.